Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals. With incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft, Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out Screencraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. My name's Al Horner, and today on the show, a dazzling cinematic odyssey into the futility of existence. Some big January vibes right there. Yes, the great Ari Aster is here, one of the boldest and most enigmatic voices to have emerged from American cinema in the last decade. He's a filmmaker I adore and someone I first met back in May 2019. The writer-director's terrifying debut feature, Hereditary, was a few months old at the time and he was deep in the edit on Midsommar, its follow-up, when I met him in New York for an Empire magazine profile that I was writing. My editor had asked me for a piece that championed Ari as a new titan of horror, which made total sense at the time. Midsommar, his Wickerman-esque second feature, promised even more frights, even more decapitations. There was just one problem though. Ari kind of rejected the idea of himself as a horror filmmaker. Horror wasn't exclusively where his heart was, despite having one generational horror smash to his name and another about to follow. He told me that day how he longed to make a comedy, a comedy musical if possible, And for a long time, I struggled to wrap my head around what an Ari Aster comedy musical would look like. Here was a guy, after all, whose work to date had chilled me to the bone. Then came along Bo is Afraid in 2023, Ari's third feature starring Joaquin Phoenix. It was a film that, against all expectations, saw him achieve that ambition. Bo is Afraid is indeed a comedy. It's just that the punchline is kind of a sadistic one that speaks to the existential treadmill to nowhere that life can sometimes resemble. 
It may not have songs in it, but its supporting cast is populated by icons of musical theatre, so it ticked that box too. Following a middle-aged man on a journey through an absurdist America en route to his mother's funeral, Bo began life as a short film in 2011. And in the spoiler conversation you're about to hear, we get into what evolved from that initial vision as the character made his decade-long way to the big screen. We talk about how in early drafts, the orphans of the forest weren't a theatre group, but a cult, something Ari had to change when he realised he was about to go three for three making films involving cults. We also get into the horror and the hilarity of the monster in the attic sequence, a scene that will stay with me for a long time. It's a short and sweet interview by our usual standards, well, maybe not so sweet given so much of this film is about anxiety and death. But you get me. It's also worth mentioning that there's a lot about this film that Ari doesn't want to explain away. He wants to preserve the mysteries rather than shrink it down to reductive answers. So at times he is keeping his cards close to his chest, as is his right. Um, what he does let on though about Bo is Afraid, I think makes for a riveting peek into a riveting mind and a riveting movie. Thanks to Ari for taking the time, thank you to Pav Patak for his excellent production assistance on this episode, and thank you as ever to our Patreon supporters for helping make this episode possible. Head to patreon.com forward slash script apart if you're not yet a member of that community but would like to get involved. Alright, with that all out the way, let's jump in shall we? This is the fantastic Ari Aster discussing the first draft secrets of Bo is Afraid. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Ari Aster, thank you so much for joining us. Really excited to have you here talking about Bo is Afraid. I love this movie, Ari, and I specifically love it as kind of like a sensory representation of anxiety. Uh, I'm not sure I've seen a movie before that kind of has bottled how it feels to be anxious. Like the perceived threats, the the catastrophizing of every looming event, all that kind of stuff. Um, the movie began as a short film over a decade ago. Take me back. When, when you were working on that short, were you looking at Bo is Afraid as an expression of what it means to be anxious back then? Was that baked in from the very beginning? Yeah, maybe. Um... But it also came from a place that wasn't all that serious. Like it, 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 as you said, the film is a comedy, and and that was the prime concern, right? Was to make something that was funny. And I think you know, in the end, it's also to make something that is true, um, at least true to me. And so it, it, it was also about kind of following those ideas and even you know the joke to its logical conclusion. But it's about a lot of things. It's about, it's about a lot of things. Primarily about ambivalence, uh, I would say. Um, and yes, of course, anxiety and fear and, and, um, and you know, what happens when, you, when, when those things lock you into a sort of stasis when, uh, when, when they, you know, it's about passivity and, and, and being passive in your own life. Uh, for me, the film is more than anything about an unlived life. Can you unpack that word ambivalence for me a bit, Ari? Like, what, what do you mean by that? What, what's the distinction for you? Well, I think ambivalence is a very particular kind of hell where you're sort of stuck in place because you can't make a decision. It tends to come from a fear of consequences. But I, you know, I have ambivalence about what to have for lunch. 
you know, um, and, you know, or, or, and I, I certainly have a lot of ambivalence around like tra- traveling. It's like a weird thing. And then, um, and I'll, and then, and then I'll suddenly be faced with uh, a much more consequential decision that can lock me in place for a long time. I did want to make a film that kind of put you in like a state of ambivalence. Like a, because I, I, there's something about the word ambivalence where it sounds kind of small, but I, 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 I think it, it, for people who like suffer from it, it, it's a, it's a huge, huge obstacle. Well, speaking of suffering, Ari, I think the best description that I've read of Bo is Afraid likened it to an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm set in hell, which, uh, really made me laugh. And, um, I think it's an interesting kind of lens into how you wrote this film, because on one hand, uh, the film seems to be structured as a Joseph Campbell hero's journey. Of course, like typically like the hero's journey as Campbell had it, you know, involves a protagonist who courageously confronts every obstacle in front of him. That's not what Bo does. He, he cowers from every challenge and then is punished by the universe for that cowardice, leading him into worse and worse situations. I'd believe you if you told me that that's how you wrote this film, that you were looking to invert the hero's journey template. I'd just as easily believe you, though, going back to Curb Your Enthusiasm, if you told me that you wrote this from a more simplistic place, that maybe Larry David writes his comedy, the hilarity of seeing how much misfortune you can pile on one man, watching it all stack up. Can, can you talk me through, uh, was it one or the other? It was somewhere in between? Talk me through it. Well, Curb Your Enthusiasm is set in, in Los Angeles, so it's already set in hell. But I, I um, <laughs> yeah, 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 I guess my quippy answer to your, to what you're uh, saying about Joseph Campbell is, yeah, that, that this is, this is the coward's journey, right? <laughs> um, but it, I, I don't know. I don't even know if it's so self-conscious as all that. Um, if the film belongs to a tradition, I think it would be that of the picaresque. Uh, the film is very spacious and it kind of changes shape a lot and it kind of changes rhythm and it investigates itself, it comments on itself, it turns against itself. And it, it, it kind of, uh, I mean, the idea was to have something that by the end it kind of like devours itself, you know, like it, it kind of, it, it eats its own head. But it is an odyssey and it is a story about a man returning home so after the success of Hereditary and then, of course, Midsummer, presumably you had your complete pick of what to do next, Ari. You decided to go back to Bo, though, and um, I am fascinated what it was about Bo that, that demanded you revisit him in 2023. Like, there must have been a reason why the character and the world he inhabited still lingered in your consciousness. Like, I'm, I'm curious whether there was anything about him that felt almost more relevant today compared to back then, given the noise of 2023, that the pace of 2023, the aggression of the time that we live in now compared to then. Why go back? What was it about Bo? I think any reference to this short film is almost overblown, but I'll kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story, um, which is basically that I'd just gotten out of school. Um, I just graduated from the AF, from the American Film Institute. And... I was moving from my apartment and I realized, oh, wait a minute, this is a, a free location. So I should make a, sh- I, sh- I should use it and I should make a, f- a film. So I, I should write something like tonight and then get a crew together tomorrow and then just shoot it in a day. So it was an exercise 
I shot this film called Bo, really like just whipped it up very quickly. Don't really like the film. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's just a slap together little thing. But uh, I liked the idea of a man leaving his keys in the door, remembering he, you know, on his way to a trip, but then he realizes, oh, I forgot something, runs in, grabs it. When he comes back, the keys are gone. I liked that as like the catalyst for a story. So that stuck with me. Then I, I ended up writing this script. I liked his name in the short, so I kept the name. Um, and wrote this, you know, kind of episodic uh, nightmare comedy that, you know, just made me laugh. Um, and... At one point, I tried to get it made. It wasn't my first script. It was, you know, one of several. Um, tried to get that made. It didn't take. Tried to make a few other things. Those didn't take. Then I wrote Hereditary, and that took, right? And so after Midsommar, I was, you know, um, thinking about what I wanted to do, to do next, and I just thought, you know, it would be really fun to go to, to, to Bow World, and um, realized that. And so I went back to the script, read it. Uh, it still made me laugh. There were, you know, there were some things that uh, I didn't like so much anymore. There were certain things that, um, that I really liked, but I wanted to kind of grow them or, or go further. And then I had a, a bunch of new ideas. And so... Um, the you know the husk didn't really change so much, but but it it it, it was uh, more or less a, f a full rewrite with certain sequences that kind of just stayed exactly where they were, and and somehow the shape didn't change very much. Um, I think I re and I think I almost realized with the first that oh the first thing was a picaresque without me realizing it, and then I think I went back to it with the understanding that what I was making was a picaresque. Um, and then I, and, and, and so I, I then very consciously moved into that space. So what were the most drastic changes then, Ari, as you returned to the script? It, it sounds like the spine of the film was there and you maybe already had the tone of the movie. But in that first draft of the movie version, were there different story beats? Did you have different sections? Talk me through what changed. The... The, the the meanness of the film was there. If anything, the film has become a little bit less mean. Um, Have you got an example of that, Ari? Like, is there anything you cut because it felt too mean-spirited on poor Bo? No, it was mostly... Well, no. It, you know, if it, it might not have become less mean-spirited. It, it might even be that by going deeper into Bo and, my, and taking him even more seriously that maybe the film becomes even more mean, you know? For instance, the Orphans of the Forest, which is the arguably the third act of a four-act film, um, that used to be a totally different thing. Um, where they, you know, because right now they're a theater troupe, um, a community theater troupe um, that go from forest to forest, um, putting on shows. Um, they used to be really more of like a they were like a forest cult. And first of all, I just realized like I cannot do another cult. I'm gonna, like, uh, but it's funny because at the time that was my that was like the first cult that I put in a movie, right? Um, and so rereading it, I was like, okay, this is not a cult. Um, even though in some ways this film I think functions as 
not so much a parody of of where of, of of modes that I was working in, in you know with the first two films, but um, it does feel like a, you know if not a deconstruction, then it feels like you know I kind of the goal was to kind of stick stick dynamite in a lot of those ideas and themes that I I I, I had been working with and just kind of blow the whole thing up. So it it wouldn't have been inappropriate to keep them as a cult, and in some ways they they are just a very benign cult right now but him entering the play was totally new and him kind of going deeper into himself and for me that now is the heart of the film um it's like you know it's an interlude but it's one in which we you know really enter this character that we've been so close to but also kind of far from um because i don't think he knows himself so that's where we get the closest to him and his fantasies and his longings and you know um yeah and so that's new and then the final scene is new that was new and then the scenes in the cruise were new um yeah there was there was always something of like a water thing going on in the first script but that grew here hey everyone this is al just jumping in with a quick word about one of our great sponsors this week I know this is a podcast about first drafts, but guys, we have got to talk about Final Draft, the world's best-selling screenwriting software. Simply put, it's the easiest way of actualizing that exciting idea you have for a new screenplay. Final Draft 13 just dropped, and take it from me, it's by far the most customizable version of the software yet, full of easy-to-use tools so that you can get more done with your writing sessions. With industry-renowned features like the Final Draft Beatboard, Outline Editor, and Navigator function at your fingertips, you're going to find yourself charging towards your storytelling goals more efficiently than ever before. It's the first-choice tool of professional screenwriters everywhere for good reason. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart your 2024 writing journey today by visiting finaldraft.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at MUBI, the only curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. If you're missing out on MUBI, you're missing out on films by iconic directors and emerging auteurs. There's always something incredible to discover on the service. For example, if you're yet to catch Molly Manning Walker's heart-rending sucker punch of a drama, How to Have Sex, you need to do yourself a favor and watch it immediately. It takes viewers into a package holiday world of sun, sea, and conversations around consent that are hugely important. If you'd like to check out that astounding film and countless others like it, you can do so for free for 30 days with our exclusive promo offer. Head to movie.com forward slash script apart and follow the instructions for a whole month of amazing cinema without paying a penny. That address one more time, it's mubi.com forward slash script apart or click the link in today's show notes support for this episode also comes from our friends at magic mind the world's first productivity drink let me confess something to you guys when it comes to caffeine i'm gonna throw my hands up and say i'm an absolute addict for years i've wanted to reduce my coffee consumption so i can sleep better and feel less jittery but coffee has always felt kind of vital to my writing process to the point where I've worried that my productivity would drop off without it. Then I discovered Magic Mind. 
It's a delicious daily green shot full of all sorts of great organic ingredients that help you get into your flow state without caffeine shakes and sleepless nights. It contains a compound called L-theanine that reduces your body's stress levels and an ingredient called Bacopa Monieri that turbocharges your working memory. Try it today and start crushing your goals for 2024 by visiting magicmind.com forward slash janscriptapart where you can get 30 days for free when you take out a three-month subscription. Use the code SCRIPTAPART at checkout where you can also take advantage of their exclusive January offers. That address again is magicmind.com forward slash janscriptapart or click the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I hadn't really considered the the kind of motif of water in the film, but now you mention it, of course, it, it does come up again and again. Uh, water has a really pronounced role. For example, in the final scene of the movie, we linger on the image of a watery grave for what feels like an eternity as the credits roll. Why water then, Ari? What, what made you incorporate that as a, a kind of running visual thread in, in Bo is Afraid? Totally intuitive. I mean, the the film is, I'm, I don't know. I don't want to say it's it's like a, it's like a work of intuition, but it but it I, I did I did feel my way through this film, and I would not want to explain much of anything. I've got to ask about the the kind of religious component to the movie, Ari. You've likened the film to a, Jew, a Jewish Lord of the Rings, which really makes me laugh, but um. It's also filled with Christian iconography. There are these giant billboards in the first section of the film proclaiming that Jesus sees your abominations. And um, of course, there's also what looks like a Virgin Mary statue that the bow is clutching throughout the film. Is there anything you can tell me about how religion and religious iconography came to be something kind of constantly on the fringes of, of wherever Bo ventures? Maybe it was another thing that, that tumbled from you intuitively, but I'd be really interested to to hear your thoughts. Well, I wanted the film to have like the the weight and like the scale of like myth, and so I, you know, um, for me, if you were raised with religion, whatever that is, like there's a lot of imagery here that I think would probably be, you know, would probably activate like baggage. I see the film as feeling like very Greek, especially by the end. For me, the film is more Jewish in its worldview and like and uh, philosophy than it is in its like imagery, for instance, or you know iconography. Yeah, I wanted to make something that kind of felt elemental and kind of, especially when you get to the the forest. I wanted to make something that felt kind of ancient as well by the end and very contemporary. I mean, it's it's you know again you know I'm now putting words to things that are really just a matter of like intuition and feeling and just uh i want to be careful not to reduce anything too much because there was so much because every every time i say something i i immediately think of five decisions we made that might contradict something i've said or that's or 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 something i've said might contradict things in the film that you know i wouldn't want to be undermined by you know some fucking half-assed thought I, I i had in a hotel room while you know while being you know um interviewed while i have jet lag you know <laughs> no i can totally imagine and yeah it, it must be strange to work from a place of intuition on a story like this 
then be asked to unravel those mysteries by people like me, when the likelihood, I suppose, is you're still unraveling them for yourself. Um, if it's okay, though, Ari, I would love to ask about some of the segments of the film, how they came to be, how they pushed the nightmare forward. I remember the first time I watched Bo is Afraid, finding the segment in the city so distressing and violent, that, that first, first act. There's something about the act that follows it, that the kind of Grace and Roger segment of the film, that hits you like a ton of bricks, because you sharply realise that the nightmare Bo is submerged in isn't a result of his surroundings, it, it's not a city problem that he can outrun by leaving the city. Entering suburbia, it's, well, it's a softer hue of nightmare that he experiences, but the paint is just as poisonous, to, to use language appropriate to this section. Um, the, the city segment is obviously a holdover from the short film a decade ago. How did you come to write in Grace and Roger and, and that whole segment? Yeah, Grace and Roger has been there for a long time. I also just found it funny to put Bo in, in that environment, you know, with, you know, like a family of, like, you know, this Goy family. I think the film functions as like a hall of mirrors and each section kind of reflects, you know, the others without explaining too much, you know, uh, the Grace and Roger section, you know, it, it, like it, he, he's entered this kind of like idealized family space. He's become sort of a surrogate son to them, but he's, but it's also like, this is what he didn't have. We've already touched on the Orphans of the Forest segment, so I'll skip to the final segment in that kind of twisted hall of mirrors that you just described. It's another warped reflection, Ari, of what's come before. There's so much to be said about this segment. The monster in the attic, the uh, climactic scene in more ways than one with Elaine. I, I think you also mentioned earlier that the ending was rewritten. To whatever degree you're comfortable, Ari, like I'd love to, you know, I'd love to hear how this final segment evolved on the page, how it all came together, the the, the evolutions it went through. Well, in the case of the, in the case of the monster in the attic, you know, it's pretty simple. His dad's a dick. <laughs> um, and when I said the ending, I, I meant the tri the the uh, the tribunal. Oh, okay, right. So, so you always had the the twist of the mum still being alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that was always that was like the first the, the that was the first thing I came up with for the film. But yeah, no, I mean, you know, the that that last act is very, you know, it's I wanted that thing to feel Greek. It's very operatic. It's um, you know, I'm, the mother's monologues. You know, I was almost trying to channel like. Tennessee Williams or something, you know, just, you know, full, full melodrama, um, like unabashed, like, you know, um, over the top melodrama, uh, but also get to the heart of something, you know? So it's, it's, it, it's tricky because the film is sort of a sustained long joke, but I, but I'm, 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 I, I am trying to get at something true about parents and children and and blame and and i'm tr i'm trying to do it in a way that makes me laugh that that is funny um and you know i mean the nature of the film too is that it it is exhausting it's designed to be exhausting it, it's been sort of this recurring thing in the process of making the film is that people keep saying it's long and then i say yeah, yeah it is long you wanted it to be longer at various points right not much longer it's still 
I was able to retain the shape of the film. It, it's actually, it, it is the length that it needed to be. Um, there, there are no like sequences that I cut. You know, there's some, there are a few scenes that I cut, but I cut them for pacing. Um, but the film is by its, like, it, it, it is necessarily long. And there are times when I watch it and I get kind of giddy at how long it is. Like I, like we get through the, the forest section and it, and the film is sort of designed to peak emotionally there. And then from there, it's a descent. And I always get kind of giddy wa watching it myself, realizing there's an hour left after this because, because <laughs> I've, 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 I've kind of like, you know, the, the shape has at this point kind of resembled something like a traditional uh, film. And, but I think at the end there, I, I feel if I, if I'm able to sort of like, you know, um, achieve any, like, you know, anything close to objectivity to realize, okay, yeah, from here on, like this now feels different. Like, it, it, yeah. Like na now I, I, I think this thing is um, its own thing. It's a funny thing to set out to make something that exhausts people, like that, that is like, you know, not only a pummeling and that the, you know, the film is uh, anxiety inducing and everything plus the kitchen sink, but, but also to make a film that, you know, kind of feels like life to me and that it's like, by the end, you've just been battered and, and broken down and, and, uh... <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Um, you know, Ari, ac across this conversation, I've noticed that we keep gravitating towards that forest segment of Bo is Afraid. So I'll end with two questions that kind of zero in on that segment as it, it clearly seems to mean a lot to you. It's the moment in the film that gets closest, I think, to a form of peace, but both for the character and for us in the audience too. And of course, that piece is, is brutally interrupted later on. But uh, yeah, my read on this section, it really reminded me of how art can be a refuge from anxiety when you're creating it, when you're watching it. And I wondered whether that is something that you were literalizing for yourself on screen, whether you're at your happiest and you're at your most serene when you're writing and whether that segment before its bloody disruption is kind of a reflection of that. Well, that's, that's certainly true for me. Uh, I am an anxious person and um, I am kind of uh, stricken by ambivalence and uh, making films is somehow this like miraculous space where I, where that is not a problem for me. Um, where decision-making somehow is easier and more joyful. And then in terms of that sequence, um, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of that is there. It actually wasn't that conscious for me. It's re it really was, it felt like, it felt like a way to enter him and to enter his fantasies and to enter his mind, but also his heart in a way that the rest of the film doesn't quite allow. I feel like for the rest of the film, we're like kind of in his nervous system. And then for the, and then it was about really pausing to sort of um, imagine all the things that his hangups have kind of like have made impossible. I love plays within films. Um, I love like the idea of a stage and what you can do there. I love the artifice of of stagecraft. I I often watch plays thinking I, I would love to like s sort of achieve this level of artifice in a film. There there are films that play with stagecraft and that level of artifice, and I find them like thrilling. Like 
Kobayashi's Kwaidan or or what uh, Schrader uh, achieves in Mishima in the in the um, the adaptation sequences where where the books are adapted. Um, I, uh, I I you know I, I love what Palin Pressburger do in so many of their films, especially Tales of Hoffman and The Red Shoes and and um, I was in Japan a few years ago and I saw a kabuki show and that was like uh, seismic for me. Like I just what they were doing with the stage as a canvas, like they were treating it like it's a frame, you know, like it, it, and, and the, the sense of composition was like shocking to me and, and, and what they were doing with color was like shocking and startling to me. I, I love it when films give themselves license to sort of make something that is like purely um, and like, which is, that, that is purely aesthetic. And that finds like real joy in that freedom, you know. And just finally, Ari, when you look into the storybook vision of your future, a bit like the one Bo experiences in the woods that day, going forward now, having ticked off this ambition of yours that, that you kind of alluded to the last time we hung out in 2019, what do you see in that storybook vision? Like, what else is there to, to kind of move forward towards now in, in terms of your filmmaking? Have you thought about it? You know, making this film was that vision. Like, I, I made this film in freedom, and I, I love this film. You know, I think it's, for me, it's the best film I've made. Uh, it's at least, you know, my favorite of those films. And I, if I can, cont if I can continue working in a similar mode, like that would make me happy. That's really beautiful. Well, whatever your next steps are, Ari, you know, I'm excited to watch it and, and to hopefully chat with you again. It's always a privilege, man. Thank you so much for coming on Script Apart. Thank you. You've been listening to Script Apart. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash script apart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.